especially when life gets difficult and uh, the troubles and concerns come upon us, and yet we have a promise from God that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And a little later, Paul says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. We certainly do have victory, victory over sin and death, victory over hell and the grave. And so, church, we have a lot to be thankful for. Even when life gets tough, even when we're in the valley, He is with us, and we can rejoice if our eyes are on Him. So this morning, we are going to do just that. We're going to rejoice in the King of kings and Lord of lords. And before we get into the message this morning, we're going to take a moment to confess any sin that we have, ask God to open our eyes and our hearts to the Word, and to just uh, spend a moment uh, in silent prayer. So I'm going to read to you from Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, and then we'll take a moment in silent prayer, and then I'll lead us together. Joel 2, 12 and 13 says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Father, we thank you this morning that you are gracious and loving and patient with us, Lord, and you allow us the opportunity to come before you and to confess our sins, our struggles, our hurts, and that you are the great healer, Lord, the great forgiver, the great Savior. And Lord, we're thankful for that today. So forgive us of our sins, Lord. Let our hearts and our minds be focused on you and your word alone today, Lord. And we pray for your spirit to speak to us and draw us. And Lord, if someone here today is lost, that today might be the day they come to know you as Savior. If someone here is backslidden or just struggling in life, that, Lord, they would make that step today to draw near to you, and you promise to draw near to them if they'll do so. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today, if you would, turn with me to First Peter as we continue uh, in our series there. We spent the last two weeks looking at what Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had to say to us about the topic of holiness. And we looked at God himself being holy and how in turn we as believers ought to emulate that type of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so today we're going to shift gears a little bit and we are going to look at what results for us as believers from the Word of God. And so the title of my message today is, What Will Bloom from the Word of God? We are, believe it or not, despite the weather, it is spring, um, despite the fact that we had snow last week, uh, it is spring and things are blooming. The frost might have hindered that a little bit, but things are blooming. It is a beautiful time of year to see life coming back. But the Word of God is often called a seed. Jesus told a parable, uh, the parable of the sower, and he related to the Word being a seed there. Uh, and so in an agrarian culture such as Palestine was, there's a lot of imagery of farmers and planting seed and certainly the word of God is a seed that we know when finding good fertile ground in our heart can bloom into something beautiful uh, but as believers it should continue to bloom and produce things so we are going to look today at first Peter chapter 1 we're going to begin at verse 22 and we're going to read into chapter 2 ending at verse 3 so I'm going to ask one final time if you're able to stand with me as we read God's word together and then we will pray Verse 22 of chapter 1. 
Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, falls or fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Father, again, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this place to gather together. We pray that your will would be done, that you would increase and I would decrease and we'll give you the glory for everything happening here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Someone wrote these words as an anonymous quote, but they said this, if you're planning to plant for one year, plant grain. If you're planning to plant for 10 years, plant trees. If you're planning to plant for 100 years, plant men. If you plan to plant for eternity, plant the Word of God. There was a story told, again, in Reader's Digest. This is the second week I've quoted from Reader's Digest, so I'm officially old. Um, but Reader's Digest told a story of a company that mailed out these little brochures, these business postcards, and on the postcard was a mustard seed taped to the front of it. And it said this <clears throat> on the postcard, If you have faith as small as this mustard seed in our product, you are guaranteed to get excellent results and be totally satisfied. Signed by the management. The story goes on to say a few months later, one recipient of this promotional piece wrote back to the company and said this, You will be very interested to know that I planted the mustard seed you sent on your advertising card, and it has grown into a very healthy bush producing wonderful tomatoes. Because sometimes things grow that we didn't expect. And sometimes that happens because we plant the wrong seed. So I want us to think about that a little bit, and let's look at our text today. We started in verse 22, but in the Greek, verse 22 and 23 are just one long sentence. Again, I've told you many times that when these letters were written, they weren't broken down into chapters and verses. That was something that was added much later in the 16th century by the translators. And so these were originally letters without any of those uh, notations. Sometimes it's helpful to read them as such because the chapter breaks and the verse breaks can not always be 100% accurate in where they're located. And so this is one big sentence as we look at it. And as we read through it, there's a lot of things that Peter writes about. But again, as we looked at last week, there were a lot of things listed, but there was really only two commands that we saw uh, the last couple of weeks, and in this portion, there's only one command that's really given in this, and that command is to love one another, and that is really the heart of everything else that Peter says in this text this morning, is our love for one another. We've talked about holiness the last two weeks, and I, I think that we've mentioned it enough for you to hopefully remember that holiness and the word sanctification 
and the word saint all come from the, the basic root word hagios, which means to set apart. So when we're sanctified, we're set apart. As saints, people of God, we are set apart. As being holy, we are set apart. We're different. We're set apart for a specific purpose. That is the idea that we've discussed when it comes to holiness. Now look at what Peter writes today in our text. He starts right off by saying, having purified your souls. This word purify is also connected to all those other words, holy, saint, sanctify, a little bit different uh, way of saying the word hagnazio, but nonetheless it still comes from the same root to set apart. But when we think about being purified, I'm not sure what comes to your mind. When I thought about it, my mind immediately went back to the Old Testament. And I thought about all the different rituals that they had to go through to get ready for an offering, the high priest purifying themselves, the Nazarite vow and the purification that took place with all that. Let me give you just one verse to kind of shift your mind towards the Old Testament if you didn't go there immediately. Numbers 8.21 says there, the Levites, so that was the priestly uh, tribe of Israel, the Levites purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes, and Aaron offered them as a wave offering before the Lord, and Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. So you see, as they're getting ready to participate in worship and sacrificing these animals and all the different things that the Levites would have done, there is a purification taking place. But notice what they did. They purified themselves from sin, and they washed their clothes. The purification from sin had to begin on the inside, correct? Right? It was an inward transformation. And then it led into an outward washing of the clothes. So this was a complete purification from the inside out. Do you know when else you are purified from the inside out? When you believe in Christ. When you turn to Christ. If you are trying to just purify yourself by cleaning up the outside... You have done nothing to change the heart, and you can't do anything to change the heart. The purification that God provides for us through Christ is a new heart through a new birth. And so Peter, though, it's interesting what he says here. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. What is he saying there? If the Old Testament talked about these ceremonial cleansings that was an, an outward thing in a lot of ways, but our text today is speaking of something internal, you kind of see that in the other usages of this word. James talks about it, and he says to purify your hearts. John talks about it in his epistle, and he says that we ought to purify ourselves as God is pure. And so those are all pointing towards inward things, and Peter is talking about the same thing. Another thing about that word purified that's interesting is it's in what's called the perfect tense. What that means, all that means, is that it's something that happened in the past and continues to go forward. Again, what happened in the past for us as believers? Christ died for our sins and we have placed faith in Him. That action has continuing results for us. When we believe, we are justified, we are cleansed, we are purified, we are holy, positionally speaking, and that continues. At no point in your Christian life do you positionally become unholy. At no point in your Christian life do you cease to be a saint. 
at no point in your Christian life do you stop being pure. Now that's hard for us to wrap our mind about, around because we know ourselves. And if we're honest, we say there's lots of times where I act anything but holy. There's times where I feel very impure. There's times when I don't feel like a saint. And again, in your answer, in your response to that, I don't feel, I don't feel, or I don't think, I don't think. Can we have wrong feelings and emotions? Can we have wrong thoughts? All the time. We don't anchor our hope on our feelings, our emotions, and our thoughts unless they are in line with the Word of God. What God says about us is true, not what we think or feel about ourselves. We have to bring our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings, and everything else about us under submission to the Word of God to get an accurate uh, perception of who we are and who God says we are. Now, can we do sinful things? Can we have impure thoughts? Absolutely. Should we repent in those moments to get right with God in the sense of our fellowship being restored? We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. But that does not separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Or else Paul was wrong in Romans 8. If you fall away from the love of God, then he is not the great shepherd that keeps you in his hand and no man can pluck you out of it. You see, the promises of God are true, regardless of your feelings, regardless of your thoughts, and even regardless of your actions. That's no excuse to live in sin. Paul says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? If you're a child of God, you shouldn't desire to live like you used to live. But there will be times when you fall into that old lifestyle. To be a backslider, you have to have had something to fall back from, right? And so when we fall into those times, God will chastise us as a loving father. He'll draw us back. He'll discipline us, whatever he needs to do to get our attention. But that does not mean that he stops loving us. Matter of fact, it shows how much he does love us, that he cares enough to not let us wander off into our sin and destroy ourselves, that he keeps forgiving, he keeps seeking, and the blood keeps on cleansing over and over and over. We are pure. But Peter says that we purified our souls by obedience to the truth. Now, wait a minute. Don't we always preach that we are saved by grace through faith and not of works? Then how does our obedience come into play to make us pure? What is he trying to say there? The word obedience means literally to hear under. It's made up of two words, to hear and under, so the, the two together means to hear under. What he is saying there, or what this might be saying is, that we are to submit, that we are submitting, or that we are complying, okay? So we heard the truth, and many people hear the truth and die lost. Why? Because they hear it. What, what did Jesus often say? If you have ears to hear, then hear. Everybody probably had ears, didn't they? The statement was not, you know, listen up. The statement was listen up and obey. In the Old Testament, we've talked about this many times, the prayer that was so important to the Jew to this day is Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
in the Hebrew language, the word hear doesn't just mean to listen with the ear. It means complete submission to the message. And that is the same idea that we're seeing here. When you hear the truth, when you hear the gospel, when anything is proclaimed from the Word of God, you are hearing directly from God. I understand I'm standing up here this morning communicating to you, but this message is not from Pastor Chris. This message is from the Lord. It's His Word. It's His. This is inspired by God. He uses human vessels to communicate it to His people. But I am speaking on behalf of the Lord through His Word. That's the importance of when you gather and what you hear. You can't, well, you can, but you shouldn't just dismiss it. You shouldn't just say, well, pastor was talking about somebody else today. Well, pastor was way off. Pastor was boring. Listen, if it came out of this book, it was from God. I may have not had the greatest illustrations and I may have not had the best sermon, but nonetheless, it's God's word. And you need to do something with it. You need to obey it. You need to heed it. You need to submit yourself and comply with it. And if there's areas in your life that are not in submission to it, you need to repent and get underneath of that hearing under of the word. So salvation is always by grace through faith. We're not changing the message. Peter is not changing the message. But he is saying that it goes deeper than just hearing it. It is a submitting to that word. So he says that we've been purified. Our souls are purified because we obeyed. We submitted ourselves to the truth of the word of God. He says that by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. The last few weeks we talked about the fact that because of our salvation, because we came to Christ and we've been born again and we're new creatures, our lives are different. And the first area it's different or it should be is, is a holy way of living. We don't live the way we used to. Remember, holiness set apart. We're not like the world anymore. We shouldn't be like the world anymore. We shouldn't have a love and an affection for the sinful things that we used to. Yes, they still tempt us. Yes, they still draw us. And sometimes, yes, we still stumble into them. But they shouldn't hold the same affection and desire in our hearts that they once did if our main affection and desire is for Christ. But not only does it produce holiness in the life of a believer, it produces love. It should produce love. That doesn't mean that unbelievers can't love. They certainly can and they certainly do. But they can't love on the highest plane imaginable, which is the plane of the love of God that is in our hearts, that is lived out through us. It's not even our love, guys. Do you realize that? When we show this kind of love, it's not something that we are producing. We don't produce anything except sin and garbage. Anything good that is produced from us is produced by God through us. That's the amazing thing. You don't rely on yourself to do these things. You rely on the Spirit of God in you. And He lives out through us this love. Peter says that because we're pure, we've obeyed the Word of God, we've submitted to it, we ought to have a sincere, brotherly love. Now, we, we talk about this a lot as well. What is the thing that the church is accused of having and being the most? Hypocrites, right? Notice that Peter says we ought to have a sincere brotherly love. That word sincere is the exact opposite of the word hypocrite. Don't have a hypocritical, which means to put on a mask. Don't pretend. 
don't just pretend. We come in here, not just here, every, every believer who goes to church comes in church and we're good at pretending. It's like we hit those doors and we, have, we feel as though we need to pretend. We need to pretend that we haven't had a bad week, that we haven't sinned a lot this week, that we haven't grieved a lot this week, that our faith has really been tested this week. We pretend that we love everybody in the pews around us when we don't. We pretend on and on and on about different things. And a church that is able to be transparent, to be able to be real, is a church where God will do great things in their midst. We need to, we talked about in Sunday school this morning, the fact that we need to be accountable to one another. We live in a world today where everybody wants their own personal space, where they don't want anybody butting in their business, that, that they just want to live an isolated, solitary, self-centered life. And if anybody in the church tries to intervene in any way, they get upset, they get offended, they quit, they don't want it, they get mad. We ought to be thankful that people want to invest in our lives. We should be thankful that there are people that are willing to come alongside of us in our struggles. The Bible says to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And we can't do that if we push everybody away that wants to do those things with us. And so we shouldn't be hypocritical. Peter says we ought to have a sincere, brotherly love. Kind of the same thing that Paul says in Romans 12:9. He says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine. The, King, the New King James actually says, let love be without hypocrisy. It actually uses that uh, negative side of things with being a hypocrite. And so the new birth will not just produce holiness in us, but it should produce love for one another. A sincere, brotherly Love, Philadelphia. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like Philadelphia, doesn't doesn't it? A brotherly love. Philadelphia is a brotherly type of love. We ought to have affection for one another. We ought to love one another in that way. And look what else he says in that verse. Have a sincere brotherly love. And then he says, love one another earnestly. Not Philadelphia, but agape. He uses both right next to each other. Have the brotherly love, love the brethren, but love them in that supernatural kind of love that only can come from God. And not only that, love one another earnestly, or the King James says fervently, from a pure heart. That word earnestly or fervently literally means to stretch yourself out as far as you can, to strain yourself. I wonder... I wonder, how much effort do we put into loving people? Really think about that question. Don't just blow it off. How much effort, if, it, if the word fervent, fervent means to strain, to stretch yourself out, how much do we stretch ourselves to go out of our way to show love to one another? Because I am convinced over the years, uh, being a pastor over, over a pretty decent amount of time now, that great programs and great music and great preaching and all those other things are important, certainly. Certainly they're important. But the greatest thing is love. Doesn't that sound familiar? 
Didn't Paul say something about that in 1 Corinthians 13? And if we do all the other stuff fantastic and we don't have love, it really means nothing. It really means nothing. Like, you can have the biggest church with the biggest budget, with the greatest programs, but at the end of the day, if love is lacking, then the church is lacking. It really is. I've been to some churches that seat thousands and not felt any love when I was there. If you want Caruso Baptist Church to be great, it starts with learning to love one another and love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That will make a great church. God will build His church. Everything else will fall into place. Everything else will come together, I promise you. But we have to learn the basic lesson of how to love God and love one another. And everything else, I promise you, according to the Word of God, will fall into place. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What does that look like? To stretch yourself out. It means that when you find out an opportunity to love somebody, do it. We talked about this also in Sunday school. I think a lot of times believers come to church and they just kind of find themselves a spot in the pew and they say, well, in the back of their mind, they say, I really want to get involved. I really want to do something, but I don't know what to do or I'm going to wait until a pastor or somebody comes and asks me and then I'll pray about it and then maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. There's a sign-up sheet out there. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't. You don't have to wait to love somebody. You don't have to wait to be asked. You don't have to wait for a position to open up for you to be nominated to do something. If you're a Christian, your job is to love one another and to love the people around you. And that will keep you so busy that you won't need to look for anything else. If you have time to do something else here, that's great. We really could use a lot of help. But the best thing you can be doing right now is loving people. When we have prayer requests and we, we sit there for 15 minutes and naming off a list of names of people that's sick, dying, hurting, that's a whole list of people that you could be reaching out to in one way or another and showing them love. When we go to Island Lake and do outreach, that's a whole community full of people that need love that you can be a part of. When you come in this church and there's people that's hurt, when people are up here at the altar, this is just a personal thing. My wife doesn't like it when I talk about this, but I'm going to talk about it because it bothers me, and I'm not trying to guilt you, but it just bothers me. It always has ever since I got saved. When somebody comes to the altar, I think it's a tragedy that they sit up here and wet these steps with their tears and not a single person comes to praise with them. That's just me. Now, I know my wife and I, we've had this, this talk many a time, and she says sometimes they just want to come up here and be alone. Sometimes they just need to be alone, and we shouldn't swarm on them like vultures. I, I'm, 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 hey, I get it. I'm not arguing that point. I, we're, we're, we're just different. We're just different. And she's just wrong. And that's okay. <laughs> hey, I, I get it. I'm not saying just do it just to do it. But I think I can't imagine that when somebody's up here at the altar, there aren't times when some of you are prompted to come pray and you just don't because you're afraid you're going to bother them. If God put it on your heart, that's what he wants you to do. And I guarantee you that that person's not going to get up and say, will you please go sit back down so I can get back to... They're not going to say that. So if the Lord put it on your heart, if you love that person, if you don't, you know, just go up there. You don't have to touch them. You don't have to say anything. Just go up there and kneel next to them. I just think that if you love somebody in that moment, it's good to, when you, when you raise up your tear-soaked eyes from the altar to see people around you 
with tear-soaked faces next to you because they love you. I think that matters. I do. I really do. So we love one another. It makes a difference. It will make a church great or it will keep a church from being great. And it's up to you. Each and every one of us need to be diligent about looking for opportunities to love others as God has loved us. God loved us, church. He loved you enough to send his son to die for you. If that is the example, should we not be living that out before everyone else? And then Peter goes on in the verses that follow, and he really talks a lot about the word of God, which is where I want to kind of bring us to as we, as we come to the end of this thing. He says in verse 23, since you have been born again, so he's speaking obviously to believers, and he says they were born again not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable. So all of us were born to human parents. We were all born with the sinful fallen nature of the first Adam. And because of that, if we continue in that place, we will die and be lost and condemned. But if we are born a second time of the imperishable seed through the second Adam, which is Christ, we become new creatures, our sin is forgiven, eternity is ours, and we know that we will see heaven because of what Christ has done for us. So he contrasts these two things, the perishable seed and the imperishable, which is through the living and abiding word of God. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, which Peter does a lot, from Isaiah. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. So again, contrasting the perishable, the grass dies, the flowers fade, they don't last forever. But verse 25 says, the word of the Lord does remain forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. It was the gospel that you heard that ultimately found the good ground in your heart that led to repentance and faith in Christ. And that was the work of the Spirit of God in your life, cultivating your heart, priming you, if you will, preparing you to receive the good news of the gospel. So let's look at what he says uh, in these verses that we just read. He says that the word of God, number one, is imperishable. He says it's imperishable. That means it cannot see decay. It is everlasting. It is an everlasting word. All the things of this earth will pass away, but the promises of God are sure and steady. They will not pass away. Isn't it good to know that when God makes you a promise, it comes with a guarantee? It comes with a guarantee. A lot of times we buy extended warranties and they give you a guarantee and they're not worth the paper that they're printed on, right? You try to actually do something with the warranty, you try to get them to follow through on the guarantee and they got all this red tape and all this fine print and you can't get them to do anything. It was a waste of time. It was a waste to buy the warranty because it didn't do any good. That's not the way that God's word works. When God makes a promise, when he gives a guarantee, it is absolute and final and you can trust it. It's imperishable. He also says, in verse 23, that it's living. The King James in, in the book of Hebrews says that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word quick means life-giving. It is a life-giving word. James 1.18 says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits." of his creatures the word of god is living it's alive have you ever noticed that no matter how many times you read the word of god something new is found in it you never it never stops revealing more truth to us it never stops producing life 
It is the source for us of life. That's why we talk about so often and, and hammer the point so hard that you've got to be in the Word of God. It is what produces and keeps producing life in you. And if you don't spend time in the Word of God, you will not grow and you will become spiritually malnourished. You will become spiritually malnourished. He also says not only is it living, but it's abiding. It's fixed. It's never obsolete. Many a liberal theologian over the centuries has tried to revise and edit and change the Word of God. It doesn't need any help. What God spoke, what God inspired, is what was needed for us. It doesn't need to be changed. It cannot be changed. It abides forever. It is an unchanging Word. And not only that, he says that in verse 25, that it perseveres. Think about over the centuries how many people have tried to do away with the Word of God. The atheist Voltaire said, within 20 years, the Word of God will be extinct. Voltaire is dead, the Word is still here, and his home where he made that statement is now a place where Bibles are published, believe it or not. So here is a quote. Uh, D.L. Moody said this, but I don't think the quote originated with him. But he said, the empire of Caesar is gone. The legions of Rome are moldering in the dust. The avalanches that Napoleon hurled upon Europe have melted away. The pride of the pharaohs is fallen. The pyramids they raised to be their tombs are sinking every day in the desert sands. Tyre is a rock for bleaching fishermen's nets. Sidon has scarcely left a wreck behind it, but the word of God still survives. All things that threaten to extinguish it have only aided it. And it proves every day how transient is the noblest monument that man can build, how enduring is the least word that God has spoken. Listen, tradition has dug for it a grave, and tolerance has lit it with many a bundle of sticks. Many a Judas has betrayed it with a kiss. Many a Peter has denied it with an oath. Many a Demas has forsaken it, but the word of God still endures. What a testimony to the preservation of God and his word. We have an, ex an exceptional amount of manuscript copies. I've talked about that many times. How can you trust that this book is accurate? Because we have 5,800 plus manuscripts that prove to the veracity of it that over the years it has not, has not changed. The Dead Sea Scrolls shows us just how accurate the Old Testament was. I've said it many times. Find me another book with the evidence that the Bible has to back up its claims that it has not changed over the years. Think about the supernatural uh, thread, if you will, that runs through the Bible, the prophecies with such accuracy predicted and all coming to pass exactly as they were stated. The prophecies of a Messiah who would come predicting where he would be born, how he would die, that not a bone in his body would be broken, that he'd be crucified between two thieves. That's not an accident that all those things just happened. Jesus couldn't have just worked all that out to just deceive people. There were things that were prophesied that were outside of his control. And it still happened, exactly as the Word of God says. Think about the transformed lives. You had fishermen and people in an upper room after the crucifixion, scared to death, fearing for their lives, hiding. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, and the very next day they are boldly standing up before people, willing to and ultimately laying down their lives for the gospel. Folks, people don't die for a lie. People will die for a lie that they think is true, but this would have been a lie that they know wasn't true. 
Like people will die for Muhammad, they'll fly planes in the building because they believe hundreds of years later that what was told to Muhammad was true. But these men and women literally would have known if Jesus was alive or not. If, if he was really dead, they would not have ultimately changed the next day like that and been willing to go out and preach and risk being thrown in jail and punished and tortured and giving their lives for something that they absolutely knew was false. If they stole the body, they knew he wasn't alive. That's one of the theories. If, uh, if the Romans stole the body, if the Jews stole the body, and then all this upright, all they had to pr- do was produce the body and that would have ended Christianity. It would have ended it. But the fact is, there was no body because the body ascended to heaven and it's coming back for its church one day. And so we see the truth of the Word of God. It's preserved. And then we go down into chapter 2 as we wrap this up. He says that as a result of this new birth, as a result of loving one another, remember that is the key to all of this, is that the Word of God should cultivate in us, it should bloom a love for the brother as we love Christ. And then he says, put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Obviously, the Word of God blooms a new birth in us and it produces a new life. But what is also interesting about the list that I see in verse 1 of chapter 2 is that all of those things are sins against your neighbor. Look at them again. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Those are all sins against your fellow man. You can't commit those sins if you love the brethren. He didn't just accidentally make that list. In a way, it's, it's driving back home the point that if we are to love the brethren, then we ought to treat them in such a way that does not bring harm or shame upon them. That's what he's saying there. And then he goes on in verse 2 to says, Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. Not only are we new creatures, we have new desires. He's not necessarily saying that these Christians are all immature babies in Christ. That is said other places in the Scripture. But I don't believe that that is what he is insinuating necessarily here. He's driving home the point that like, so making a comparison, like a newborn infant, any of you that have had babies, they don't do a whole lot, but they do a few things very well. And one of them's eat constantly, right? And he says, like a newborn infant, you should long for that milk. Desire the Word of God. It's your nourishment. And as, just as a small child needs to eat, when, when, when they're little, you, you feed them, it seems like every 10 minutes, but it's, what, it's about every three hours, I think, if I remember right, something like that. But it seems like every 10 minutes when you can't fall asleep because you have to get up and feed them again. But they constantly desire that, and that is what Peter is saying about us. We ought to have this desire for the Word of God because it's our nourishment. Desire that pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. He's not saying that our salvation is a progressive thing in the sense that we, we, we get a little bit of salvation here, a little bit of salvation here. But again, we talk about salvation in the grand scheme of things. There's the justification, the sanctification, and the glorification, and that is a progressive thing. When we are saved, the moment we believe we're as saved as we'll ever be, positionally speaking, we are as loved, as forgiven, and as accepted as ever will possibly be. But then we begin a journey, don't we, throughout the rest of our lives of being sanctified, 
of learning God's Word, of following the Spirit, of becoming and conforming our lives into the image of Christ. And that is a process that we experience all through our life until we leave this world where we are ultimately glorified. So when he speaks of the salvation, he's speaking of the whole picture of things. He's not saying that, it's, that you're getting saved in bits and pieces or that you need a second filling of the Spirit or anything like that. He's just saying that it's a progressive thing in the sense that from the moment you're saved to the moment you reach glory, there is a big scheme encapsulated in all of that. And he closes with verse 3, and I'm, uh, I'm going to close with this as well. He says, you're going to grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I don't know about you, but I sure could testify for a long time about how good God's been. I could sit here for a long time and tell you how good God's been to me, how good He's been to my family, how good He's been to my church, how good He's just been in general. And I think sometimes we ought to do a little bit more of that because most of the time we spend the majority of our lives in negativity and complaining. And every once in a while, it's just a good thing to say how good God is, to just let people know how good God is. Psalm 34 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. If you have put yourself under the care and authority of Christ through repentance and faith today, you're in the safest place you'll ever be. You're in the best place you can ever be. You are in the most secure place you can ever be. There is nothing greater than having your life hidden in Christ. Nothing greater. And there is nothing more urgent to consider today if you've never done that. If you have never truly tasted that God is good, my friend, can I tell you how good He was? That He loved the world so much that He would give His only begotten Son. That if you by repentance and faith would turn from your sins and surrender your life to Him and cry out to Him for mercy, that He might show you grace and that He might save you and cause you to know Him personally and to have that relationship with Him, you'll be able to testify this morning that God is good. And I promise that He will walk with you. He promises even in the valley of the shadow of death to be with you. You're going to go through some hard times. You're going to face some trials. You're going to be hurt. You're going to get sick. And you're even going to die. But in all those things, He's never going to once fail you. Never. Never will He fail you. I wish somebody would say amen this morning if that's your experience. Maybe you've never experienced that, but I sure have. I sure have. I've been down and out, and God was there with me. I've been in the sick bed, and God has been with me. I have had, you know, fears and doubts and struggles, and yet God has been with me. And that's not just something He does for preachers. That's something He does for His people. He'll do it for you, I promise you, on the authority of the Word of God. The question is, do you know Him? Are you walking with Him? Do you desire to have the Word of God be constantly in your life so that you can know Him? He is the author. He is the author. And as we read this, we're not just trying to gain more knowledge. We are trying to grow in a relationship. You would read the newspaper differently than you would read a love letter from someone that you hadn't spoken to in a long time, would you not? We read this like the newspaper when in fact it's a letter from someone who loves us and desires us to know him more intimately. We ought to view it as such and hang on every word as it reveals the Savior to us and reveals our needs.
that we may not see. So I'm going to invite the praise team to come, and we are going to close with a song of invitation that gives you an opportunity to respond to what you have heard this morning. And I'm going to ask the question to you again. How is your love? How is your love towards one another? How is your love towards your neighbor? How is your love towards an unbelieving world? You may say, I think it's pretty good. Let me ask you a second question then. Do your actions prove what you're saying? Faith without works is dead. You can claim to have love. You can quote all the verses about love, but it will be your life that proves whether or not you truly possess that or not. Do you love? Listen, above all things, I want this church to be known as a, a Bible-preaching, Christ-centered church in everything that we do. But I sure want people to say that's the church where those folks love people. They really love people. They show the love of Jesus in real tangible ways to one another and to us. That would be a good church. That would be a great church. And I believe that that's what this church can be. But again, it's up to us. What will we do? Will we stretch ourselves out for the gospel and for one another? Only you can answer that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And now we pray that you would draw those in this room, those watching online, to repentance and faith to deeper dedication and service, whatever that need might be, that you would have your way in our lives. And we'll give you thanks this morning for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing, as we stand, don't wait. If you have a need, you come. Mm -hmm.